As you're kind of getting yourself situated uh, in Genesis chapter 38, I, I want to just acknowledge that this is one of the strangest and most uncomfortable passages in the entire Bible. Uh, this, this is so strange and in some sense is so unexpected that many older critical commentators argue that this was an awkward editorial insertion into the book of Genesis. In other words, it doesn't seem to make sense. It doesn't feel like it really belongs here. I read one commentator this week that said that if your congregation is not mature enough, you might want to skip over this passage and go right to chapter 39 and continue the story of Joseph. I'm sure you know how I felt about that. That, that is, I think, to fundamentally misunderstand that there is nothing accidental about the way the Word of God is put together. Every part of the Word of God is placed exactly where God intended it to be. And that means that we need to not skip over it or fear that there's difficulties and uncomfortable things in the text. Part of the way we grow and mature in the Lord is actually by dealing with the hard things, by having to wrestle with the Word of God and make sense of what we find in front of us. But again, I, I do think it feels, if you read through the book of Genesis, you know last week we started into the Joseph narrative, which is going to take us all the way to the end of the book of Genesis in chapter 50. This does feel awkward. It feels like this strange interruption in the Joseph story because you really can, if you want to, go see. You can, you can remove chapter 38 and you can go 37 to 39 and it's as if the story of Joseph doesn't even stop. And in fact, Joseph's not even mentioned in chapter 38. Neither is God, by the way. But this really isn't an interruption. In fact, uh, there, there are incredible kind of close comparisons with chapter 37 and 38. There are things in here, uh, language and, and literary kind of devices that Moses uses that, that are going to kind of pull the story together even in chapter 39. This chapter, it serves to magnify or expand some of the key literary themes in the book of Genesis, including things like the promised seed of Genesis 3.15. Who is that seed going to be? The seed of the, the woman who's going to, to reverse the curse and put an end to sin and death. This, this passage actually helps us understand how God's going to do that. This passage also helps us see the choice, again, this common theme of the younger over the older, breaking uh, customs and conventions. God demonstrating that he will do things, he will accomplish his purposes and plans his way, not the ways of man. We're going to see even strange kind of thematic connections like family deception involving goats, which seems to be very typical of the family of Abraham. This is an important passage because it actually is an important intervention into the life of one of Joseph's brothers who, as we will see as the story progresses at the end of this chapter and even at the end of this book, will become a man who is going to be greatly used by God. 
So Moses is actually setting us up to see the significance of Judah in the story of both Jacob and Joseph. Remember, in chapter 37, we're we're starting into a new section, and the way that Moses does this is by saying, these are the generations of Jacob. And so what we're seeing is that the story of Jacob is going to progress and move forward through his sons, the two primary ones being Joseph and Judah. There's a strong connection point between these two brothers I just want to highlight before we dive into the text. And that is this, that the story of Joseph is is moving us closer and closer to this idea of Genesis 3.15, who this, this promised seed of the woman is going to be. We, we know this as, as the story has unfolded in previous chapters. This person is going to be a king. This person is going to bring the nations to himself. It's going to be used as the agent of salvation and redemption, not just for Israel, but the entire world. And one of the things we see is that Joseph and Judah are being separated literally in this passage and the one before, but also spiritually being separated from the brothers. And I think one of the things we learn from that is is really important, as we'll see in this story. It's because this promised king is going to come from the line of Judah, but he is going to look very much like the person of Joseph. And while Joseph is held up as a picture of righteousness throughout the book, Judah is actually depicted as the exact opposite of Joseph. And in this section here, we're going to watch him go through a remarkable, radical transformation all by the grace of God. And that's what God has to do in order to use this man to accomplish his purposes of redemption in the world. And I would say that that is something that you and I can relate very much to. In order for us to be used greatly by God, we must first be radically transformed and changed by God, and we must be continually transformed and changed by the grace of God. And the more and more he changes us, the more and more we become useful in his hands. And so we learn here in this passage both what prevents us from being used by God, but also what makes us God's people, a church, but as individuals also useful to God. I want to show you two requirements for being changed by God. First, notice this, that we are changed by God when we recognize the hardening effects of our transgressions. I want to read just the first 11 verses to start. Here's what it says. I told you it's strange, right? It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah, Judah, was in Shazib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. 
Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give his offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. There's significant ways that Joseph and Judah are contrasted and compared in the rest of the book of Genesis. Joseph, as we saw last week, is taken down into Egypt. We know that, right? His brothers threw him into a pit. Uh, They were going to kill him. And, And really, it was Judah who spearheaded this idea. Reuben wanted to save him. Judah decides, let's sell him into slavery. And so, Joseph is lifted out of the pit, and he's sold uh, into slavery, and down to Egypt he goes. That's what chapter 37 says. At the very end of the chapter 37, we are told that Jacob would go down to Sheol, and now Judah is going down from his brothers. I want you to notice again that there is this separation being created between Jacob and Joseph and his brothers, and there's a connection, excuse me, Judah and Joseph and his brothers, and a connection to Judah. There's something that God is working out here. Bruce Walke, a commentator, says that Judah's geographical descent from Hebron's heights to Canaan's lowlands mirrors his spiritual condition. Judah, he says, dwells in the land of promise, but instead of being a blessing in it, he conforms to the world and life view of those whom his ancestors, ancestors despised and whom his progeny is destined to dispossess. And he ends this quote by saying this, in his compromised position, he becomes a joke like Lot in Sodom. So we have both brothers that are alienated or separated from their brothers. And and here, Judah is going downhill, literally going downhill. But again, what we're supposed to see is that he has spiritually gone downhill. And we see here the hardening effects of sin being played out in, in his life. And I think as we look at his life, we can see that this is the exact same way that the hardening effects of sin work themselves out in our lives if we're not careful. So I want us to pay very special attention and, and really, really process this together. And I want you to just look at your own heart as we're walking through these kind of four subpoints together. First, notice this, that the hardening effects of sin are played out through a seared conscience. A seared conscience. So here we have Judah. He's away from his brothers, his father. Judah then attaches himself to a Canaanite man and marries his daughter. And this is deeply problematic. He is not supposed to be marrying a Canaanite woman. He has been prohibited from doing this. All he has to do is look back through his family history to see how much of a problem this is. They're supposed to be separate from the Canaanites. Why? Well, the fundamental reason is that the Canaanites, they worship false gods. And the Israelites are the only ones who are worshiping the true and the living God. And so by intermarrying with the Canaanites, 
what they're going to do is they're going to inevitably end up being drawn away from their worship to Yahweh God, and they're going to begin to embrace Canaanite gods, and this is going to violate both first and second commandments as we know. This is a huge affront to God. It is a demonstration or display of his rebelliousness. The New Testament parallel would be for us to to not marry unbelievers as Christians. What God wants for his people at the most fundamental level of their especially marriage relationship is that they they are grounded upon, they're built upon a common religious identity, a common love for who God really is, a belief, a faith in him. The scriptures were clear, cursed be Canaan. They're under a curse, and so Judah knows this. This is what you have to see here. He knows this. This is, this is, this is not ignorance here. This is willful disobedience by this man. He is walking into this sin with his head up and his mind open. He knows exactly what he's doing, and he doesn't care. He's already left his father. He's not stayed in the promised land. He wants to do things his way. It tells us something very important. It tells us that Judah disregards and therefore despises God's word. He values his own desires over the blessings and promises of God. He's willing to set aside God's purposes to satisfy his earthly desires. My mind was, was regularly, as I kind of prepared this message, going back and forth to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is this, this masterful piece of wisdom literature where a father is writing to his son and he's attempting to instruct him and to warn him and to help guide his life to prevent him, listen, from walking into willful sin, from ruining his life. In Proverbs chapter 2, he speaks to his son and he calls his son to, to listen to his voice, to his commands, to pay close attention to them, to, to get wisdom, to find wisdom. And here what we, we see, listen, is Judah doing everything he can to seek out his own sin when the word of God says this, to seek after wisdom. And he says, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. The way you would seek the riches and treasures of this world, the best that this world has to offer, that's how you should be viewing, listen Christian, that's how you should be viewing how you seek God, how you seek out wisdom from his word. It is to go after it with everything you have as if it's the most precious and valuable possession that you could own And here, Judah's not doing this at all. He's going in the opposite direction. He is not in a good place. He has seared his conscience. And this seems to run in the family. Did you notice what happens? He marries this Canaanite woman, and he proceeds to have three sons. And what we find out is that all of these sons are incredibly wicked and sinful. At least the first two are. We really don't know about the third But it's fascinating what happens here. We're told that the first Ur was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Now, we're not told about what his sin was, but I know this. Anytime the Lord puts somebody to death in the Bible, just kind of just, you're done, it's very serious business. 
They've been, they've been dabbling in sin for a long time. Their, their sin has progressed to a place where it is so wicked, so evil, so harmful, so dishonoring to God that God sees fit to put that person to death in this life for that sin. That's a devastating consequence for sin. And maybe you think it's going to be, to be better for the next brother. Now, it's interesting. This first son had a, a wife. So remember, firstborn, the family line is supposed to move through the firstborn. And so uh, the firstborn had married this woman named Tamar, and Tamar is without child. And so what happens next is that the, the next son in line is supposed to mar- marry, so to speak, uh, the, the brother's widow in order to perpetuate the family line. Okay, that's the objective here. This is a, what is called a Leverite marriage. It's something that's going to be later codified in Deuteronomy chapter 25, but it was a common practice in the ancient world. It was a way of protecting the women. It was a way of preserving the family line. It was incredibly significant in the culture. It's also helpful to know that a widow or a barren woman in the ancient world, it, it was like a death sentence. It was, it's not like today, right, where people get married and they're choosing not to have kids. Like, that's, that's a common thing today. In the ancient world, that's not an option. It probably shouldn't be today either, by the way. Not, not choosing. But, but here, like, to not have kids was to mean that you were of lesser value. It had a stigma. You were dishonorable in the culture. And so she's, she's here, and she's expecting that she's going to be well taken care of by her father-in-law, and she's going to do what the law requires and he does. He gives her the next son, a man by the name of, of Onan. And what we find out from him is that he is not willing to provide an heir for his brother. He's not willing, in other words, to do his duty to serve her, to help her, to be a blessing to her, and ultimately to honor his father by perpetuating the family line the way that he was supposed to in accordance with the culture and the law. And instead, what he does is so disgraceful, he's, he's willing to use her for his own sexual pleasure without attempting procreation. That's what's happening here. He's like, okay, I'll, I'll get all the benefits. You, you see what's happened here? He is a selfish, wicked man who wants to use this one. He wants to almost kind of leverage the law that he's allowed to have sex with her, but he refuses to do the one thing he's supposed to be doing. And what happens? God looks at this and says, this is wickedness of the highest order, and he puts him to death too. It's really fascinating, isn't it, that uh, by the providence of God, our, our catechism, did you, have you pieced that together yet? The catechism this morning? That was not planned. Maybe we could, can we, Tim, can we throw that back up? Thank you. Will God allow our disobedience and idolatry to go unpunished? That is an important question. What's, what's the answer? No. Every sin is against the sovereignty, holiness, and goodness of God and against his righteous law. And God is righteously angry with our sins and will punish them in his just judgment, both in this life and in the life to come. Maybe you're inclined to look at this text and say something like this. Well, that's not really fair that God put these two guys to death. And if that's the way you're thinking about sin, listen to me. You're taking sin far too lightly. 
the, the fair thing to do when we are in sin, I'll give you one guess is what it is. It's to be put to death. That was the promise of God from the very beginning. And it is only the mercy and grace of God. Do you realize this? It's the mercy and grace of God right now because here's, here's the truth of the matter. You can look around the room right now, okay? Go ahead, take a look. I'm giving you permission. The person you're sitting beside is a sinner. The person sitting in your seat is a sinner. The person in front of you is a sinner. Every one of us has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. This is the reality for every single one of us, and that means because the wages of sin is death. The moment we sin, God has every right to put us to death, which also means the fact that you're taking another breath right now is grace upon grace. God is kind. God is kind to not put us to death. Alan Ross looks at this picture, this, this uh, situation. He says this, what begins to emerge is the picture of a family in which the men were unfaithful, irresponsible, and far too Canaanite in their ways. It is interesting to contrast the story of Ruth, another widow, with this one. Right? Remember that story? It's the same idea of levirate marriage there. By the way, the word levirate marriage, that comes from uh, the Latin word lever, means brother-in-law. So the same idea is taking place in the book of Ruth with this man named Boaz. Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. So he, he has the opportunity to marry Ruth and to save her and to perpetuate the line of her dead husband. Now, Here's what you need to see. There are concentric circles of responsibility, which is why Boaz initially has to go to the city gate where all the judgments were being rendered, and he knows that there's one in front of him who has the right to marry her first. Deuteronomy 25, by the way, lays out what you have to do if you're not going to take the responsibility. It's shame upon you, what it's going to look like, and Boaz becomes this incredible picture of virtue, continuing the line of his dead relative bringing about the blessing of God. Here's what I want you to see. These men have seared consciences. They can live in sin without conviction of their rebellion against God to the point where God has to put them to death. A hard heart, listen, is like a calloused hand. It doesn't get that way overnight, but through intentional, repetitive behavior. And in this case, it's sin. And every single one of us can get there if we selfishly keep choosing sin over obedience to God. If we desire our sin more than we desire God, every one of us can harden our hearts, sear our conscience, and we ought to instead fear God and seek him. Secondly, I want you to notice this, that sin, the hardening effects of sin result in a stupid comfortability. That's right, I said stupid at church. Because this is so stupid, what happens next? Look at verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. 
He turned at her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. And so he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. I told you, it just keeps getting stranger. This is, this is not a comfortable passage. If you think it's comfortable to listen to, you should try preaching it. <laughs> After a long time, In other words, Tamar was patiently waiting in her father's house, a childless widow betrothed to marry the youngest brother, Shelah. But by the way, at this point, who was unable to marry someone else. And she, at this point, is utterly boxed in. But you, you kind of, you see, you see Judah, right? He's got this great fear. He's like, look it, my first two sons married this woman and they died. What does that mean for the third? And now what we see is that though he's promised Tamar to Shelah, he's kind of between a rock and a hard place, at least in his own mind. And now Judah's wife dies, and so he's mourning and he's grieving. And this, by the way, is significant to the story because this removes the possibility of Judah producing more children with his wife. So there's this kind of deadlock now in the story and in the relationships with the prospect of Judah's line completely dying out. But verse 13 Tamar, she comes up with this plan to target Judah, and she moves rapidly when she finds out that he's going to go to this place and have the sheep shorn, and and so she moves fast. There's kind of a pace to the text. She gets herself ready, and, and she's trying to do, here's what you need to see, she's trying to do whatever she can do to do the right thing. Which is really bizarre when you think about this story because you look at her actions and surely they're not, they're not okay. Like they're not, they're not right. But, but, but listen, it's fascinating when you read this story. She's never condemned for her actions. It's interesting. In fact, throughout the Bible, in, in Ruth and, and even in Matthew, she seems to almost be held in high esteem because of her actions. And I'm not trying to justify uh, dressing up like a prostitute, propositioning yourself, anything like that. Please hear me. But what I'm trying to show you is that the text itself does not lay the ultimate blame on Tamar, but on Judah. It, it is possible, um, a prof, professor of mine uh, Jim Hamilton, he, he, said it's, he said this, it's really got me thinking. He said it's very possible that Tamar actually maybe had caught wind of the promise given to Abraham, and it's, it's possible that Tamar understood somehow that the line of promise was going to come through Judah. Maybe she figured it out. She kind of understood that, and so what she's doing is actually thinking more so than Judah of the advancement of the kingdom of God. 
I don't know if that's true or not. It, it's very, it's, it, there's no kind of necessarily strong evidence in the text, but it's, it is possible. And if that's the case, that just puts a Judah in, in kind of darker light in this picture. At any rate, what you see is that Judah turns aside to Tamar, and she's, she's disguised as uh, this kind of cult prostitute. At least that's what we find out she, he thinks she is. She's taken off her widow's garments, a perpetual reminder that Judah has not fulfilled his obligation. She finds him in his time of grieving, of weakness, in a place of stronger temptation, perhaps, And the rest is history. What's really fascinating is that there's a play on words in this section. You see, Judah and Tamar's encounter takes place at this city, Anayim, and in verse 14. And the name of this city means literally opening of the eyes. And the irony here is, is that at opening of the eyes, Judah's eyes are closed to the identity of his daughter-in-law. Because she has put a veil over her face and more than likely even covered her own eyes. It's kind of a fascinating parallel of sorts with Jacob, his father, and Leah. Remember that? Where he thinks he's marrying Rebecca. She's probably got this veil over her face. Being deceived, he wakes up to find out he's marrying the older sister instead of the younger She says to him, give me a pledge. And the, the three items she requests here, these here are um, they're pieces of identification. These are significant pieces of identification in the ancient world. Uh, this would be similar to, to a prostitute asking you for your passport, your SIN number, and your credit card information. And so you can see how stupidly comfortable Jacob, or excuse me, Judah has become in his own sin. Because what he does is astounding. He hands them over as a pledge. Okay, I'll come back and I'll give you the, the animal later. For now, you keep these valuable pieces of identification. I mean, this is as stupid as responding to an email from the deposed prince of Nigeria telling you that if you send him money right now and all your information, he's going to pay you back tenfold when he gets back to his reign and power. How could he do this? Here's, here's how, how can people do things like this? Because this is not unusual, right? This is not unusual. I've been, listen, I've been, I've been doing pastoral ministry for a long time now. I think it's a pretty long time. Coming up on 15 years. That's long in my books. And here's what I would tell you. This kind of a thing is not unusual. It would shock you. And, and for some of you, it doesn't shock you because you know the sin in your own life. You know the things you've done. You know the things you're capable of. You've heard the stories of, of train wrecks, of people you never thought, you never imagined, right? You just, you couldn't believe when you heard about what this person did. And, and we're inclined to look down our noses at people and to judge them for their sin instead of to look inward and say, but by the grace of God. Sin makes us stupid. And one of the greatest ploys of the devil is that sin makes us comfortable. We get comfortable in our sin. We get so used to it. And we begin to believe this isn't that bad. And you know what? 
nobody's ever going to find out. And, and you know, I've, I kind of deserve this. After all, life's been so hard. Why can't I indulge myself every once in a while in a little bit of, of sin? My, my wife just died. Surely this isn't that big of a deal. Watch out, it's one of the most dangerous lies that the enemy has. And his designs are intentional. He's come to steal, to kill, and destroy. Don't think, listen, the moment you get comfortable with sin, watch out. That the snap of the mousetrap, it's right around the corner, right? We've said this before, I'll say it again. Sin will take you farther than you intended to go. It'll keep you longer than you intended to stay. And it will cost you more than you intended to pay. What sin are you involved in right now? I'm so glad Mark started off the service the way he did by calling us to to kind of inspect our hearts. But let me just kind of maybe press into that. Is there sin in your life right now that you are becoming comfortable with? That you think is not a big deal, a respectable sin, an easy sin to overlook or to justify in your life? Is there something in your life that you have been kind of cultivating or fostering that you're thinking, it's not that bad? And could you hear today, it's that bad. It's that bad. Because when you start getting comfortable with sin, it's just one compromise leads to the next. It's just, you know, you, know, you heard the phrase, you, you never fall very far from your sin. In other words, the big falls in your life, you know what they're often, most often the result of? You just, you just took one more little step in sin. And then you just took one more little, little, just a little bit further. You just went a little bit further, a little bit further, and then you fell off a cliff. And it happens. It happens to all of us if we're not paying attention. Next, I got two quick ones before we go to a final quick point. Um, It leads to a shameful concealing. Look at what he does in verse 20 and 23. He says, when Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who is at 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 the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. There's no cult prostitute there. By the way, a cult prostitute was common in, in many parts of the ancient world. People would go to these, these temples or these shrines and they would participate in uh, uh, these sexual acts in order to attract, so they believed, the attention of the gods and offer it as a sacrifice to the gods in order to secure their, their blessing. And I just want you to think about how perverse and distorted that is. The evil of man has no limits. Even making sin sacred in order to justify or remove or conceal the shame or stigma of it. The fact that it has religious connotations attached to it actually doesn't make it better for Judah. It makes it worse. It shows that he was willing to kind of engage in pagan practices, idolatry. 
And in a subtle literary way, Moses, the author, is actually rebuking Judah and allowing the sting of his sin and his shame to sit heavy upon him, at least for the reader. As we read it, we're supposed to see, whoa, the weight of sin is just falling on him, the shame that this man should feel. I mean, he got duped. He, for, for, for listen, I want to hear this, for momentary pleasure, he was willing to trade away his life. He's willing to lose what is valuable to him in order to shamefully conceal the shame of his sin. Isn't that remarkable? He's like, ah, that's okay. Just keep my passport and credit card and you do whatever you need to because I just, because if anybody finds out about this, it'll be humiliating. And again, one of the greatest kind of deceptive strategies of Satan is to make you feel that concealing your sin is going to be better for you than the exposing of your sin and even the humiliation that may come because of that. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. It is an absolute lie. The answer to our sin cannot be found in the concealing of our sin. Proverbs 28, 12 says that he who conceals his sin will not prosper. He won't. Pretending it doesn't exist or hiding it does not deal with it. It only further reveals the hardening effects of our rebellious transgression against God. You see, here's what we need to believe with all of our hearts. Hidden sin is growing sin. Hidden sin is growing sin. It's not a malignant tumor, okay? It's not just staying the way it is. It's metastasizing. It grows. And by the way, sin grows best in the darkness. It's like food for sin's soul. And you know what the best disinfectant for sin is? Light. Light. Bringing sin into the light is the means by which Sin begins to die. Next, we see a shocking condemnation. This is the progression of sin. And just really quickly, look at, look at this in verse 24 and 25. About three months later, Judah was told, three months passed, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. <laughs> Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. That word can be translated by prostitution as well. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. (laughs) The hypocrisy is astounding. Just the, the blind hypocrisy. He hears she's, she has been caught in immorality. And you know what he's beginning to think? She, she has not patiently waited for me to provide my youngest son. She is willing to step outside the family line and not perpetual, not do her part. She, she is immoral and she, she needs the strictest punishment. She needs to be burned. That's the pot calling the kettle black if I ever saw it. That's exactly what you're supposed to think. The hypocrisy. This is the condemnation, the judgment. This is unbelievable. 
But she is so shrewd in this passage. She's remarkable, this lady. She knows exactly what she's doing. She's waited to three months. She knows she's starting to show. She knows it's going to go public. And she knows that his response is not going to be good. Maybe, maybe he believes, finally, I can get rid of her once and for all, be done with her. Maybe he thinks, fine, good, this is a good thing. Let's be done with her and we'll move on with life. And then she sends him his possessions. Please identify. That, that, that language, please identify, has a parallel in chapter 37. Another kind of deception, but a deception that is the opposite of this. A deception not intended to actually move the family line forward, but a deception intended to stop the family line. A deception, in many ways, spearheaded by Judah himself, after selling his brother into slavery, they, they decide what they're going to do is take their brother's coat of many colors and they're going to rip it up and they're going to put goat's blood on it. Interesting, isn't it, that a goat was supposed to be brought to her for payment? Lots of really fascinating parallels. But he, he, here's what, what they say. They bring the coat, the coat to their father Jacob, the brothers, and their deception, what do they say? Identify these. I just wonder if, if Jacob is just being hit with the hypocrisy, just right, like a sledgehammer to the forehead. There's no doubt about it. This is David, this is his David and Nathaniel moment. And the question is, how will he respond? And I would just say, before we just look at his response, I want to ask you, how about you? Can you see yourself in Judah? Is the Spirit of God Listen, hitting you with a sledgehammer to the forehead today, maybe. Isn't it amazing how we can so often condemn in the most vicious ways the sin we struggle most with? I think it's a way of trying to make ourselves feel better about our sin. Where we point the finger at somebody else is doing what we do and, and it kind of is this, this fake way of providing some, you know, assuaging the guilt and the shame. But all it does is it just increases the shame and the guilt because the hypocrisy perhaps is the greater sin. Can you see the way that sin works itself out in your heart, the hardening effects of sin? And are, are, you, are you able to recognize when it begins to move down that path, that, that seared conscience that begins to start, that stupid comfortability with your sin, the shameful concealing, hiding it, burying it, thinking nobody will ever find out, and even just shockingly condemning people who struggle with the very things. Proverbs 28, 12 says, he who conceals his sin will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes it will be blessed. You see, in order to be changed by God, we must lastly reveal the humbling evidence of his redemption. And I promise this is gonna be much quicker because we're dealing with a lot less text here. But what we see here is the beginning of Judah's turnaround. This is a Judah, I believe this is Judah's conversion moment. This is the, the radical transformation of his life. He will not be the same man from this point onwards. 
And it is this transformation that is going to be ultimately, I think, what God ends up using and blessing in remarkable ways. And we see a couple things. First, we see that his grace helps us deal properly with our sin. This is how God changes us. Look at verse 26. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. Listen, God's people do a lot of stupid things. You're here today, you know, and you're not a believer. You do a lot of stupid things too, but you need to hear this. You're walking into a church that's full of people who do a lot of stupid things. That would be a good spot for an amen. <laughs> we do, but, but listen, we do a lot of sinful, stupid things, even as followers of Jesus Christ. But God is gracious to make sure our sin finds us out. And here he begins to feel the shame of his sin. He's convicted, and what we see is that he repents and he finds salvation. He articulates what he's done wrong. He expresses his own guilt. He acknowledges that she's more righteous than I. She's the righteous one in this equation. She's actually been concerned about what I should have been concerned about. She did what I was not willing to do. And she did so knowing that it could cost her her very life. But make no mistake about it, he owns his sin, which is a rare occasion, by the way, in the book of Genesis, and maybe it's a rare occasion in your life today. It ought not to be that way. Repentance is a lifestyle for believers. It's a regular, ongoing reality that all of us must display in our lives. We are going to sin. The question is, what will we do when our sin is exposed? And here, Judah stands out because, not because of his sin, but more because of his repentance. And I wonder, can your eyes be opened like Judah's? When was the last time you said, I was wrong, you were right? No elbowing each other. It's about you. It's God's grace to open your eyes and to lead you to repentance. Here Judah owns his unrighteousness, and, and I love this, he bears fruit. That last sentence is really important, and he did not know her again. He gives evidence of his salvation, and he commits to a new course of life. He is a new man. God has done a remarkable work in his life, and it began when his sin was exposed, and there was a God-wrought willingness to own it and to repent of it. This is evidence of the grace of God right here. If you find yourself repenting and turning from your sin and walking a different path, you need to hear this today. That is not only obedience to God and pleasing in his sight, it is a result of the grace of God in your life. And you ought to celebrate that and thank God for that and pray for that and long for that and pursue that. This is a rebuke for those who have never changed even though they profess faith in Christ and it is hope for those who have sinned and long to change. Lastly, his grace makes us useful in spite of our sin. Kind of an interesting close to this passage. It says this in verse 27. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. Another theme throughout this book, right? 
And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took it and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. Here's the firstborn. But he drew his hand back his hand, and behold, his brother came out. It's tough labor. She said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. God works in spite of the sin of his people. But more importantly, God works to transform and change his people. He loves to use radically transformed people. And as the Joseph narrative continues, Judah, he's going to be found back with his brothers, and the assumption is that he is no longer living among the Canaanites. In fact, I want you to just process this for a moment. Everything that's going on in Judah's life is running parallel to all the events taking place in the life of Joseph. And I think the reason this is happening is because when the two meet face to face again, Judah is going to be an entirely new... Maybe these events right here, this radical transformation happened right before he goes down to Egypt with his brothers and has to come face to face with the brother he sold into slavery. And only then is he ready to face his actions and his behavior. I can promise you this, there we will see a new man. You see, when he goes to Egypt and he stands before his brother Joseph and Joseph says... That the brothers can leave, but Benjamin has to stay. He's going to ask to, be, to trade his life for his brother Benjamin. This is not this. He's the one who said, let's sell our brother into slavery. Now he becomes the man who says, take me, not him. He'll be willing to trade his entire life to become a slave in order to save his brothers and honor his father. It's a miraculous transformation, the work of the Holy Spirit, and that is what our God does. He takes wretched sinners like Judah, and he makes them Christ-like godly men who begin to walk faithfully with him. Judah will become the largest of the tribes and the leader of them. He'll become the namesake for the Jews. Judah will be the name written on the gates of the heavenly Jerusalem, and most importantly, this story, which at first sight seems to be so marginal to biblical history, it records a vital link in saving history. Jacob will give him the greatest blessing of all. In Genesis 49, he will say, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet." You see, Tamar, through her determination to have children, secured for Judah the honor of fathering both David and the greater David, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. Both Rahab, chapter 4, pointing us towards David. But if you were to read in Matthew, chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus... You will see some familiar names there, not least of which is Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and of course, Mary, the mother of Jesus. And and every one of these women are these courageous, faith-filled women. Four of them are not Jews. All of them are going to be involved in what at the very least appears to be some kind of sexual scandal. All five of them are outsiders. They're not the people that you would want in your family tree. 
And these mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. It's remarkable. And you see, what this reminds us of, what this passage reminds us of, is that Jesus did not come from a long line of morally pure ancestors, but from women and men who were sinners in one way or another. And yet God saved and changed and used them to bring the Savior, Jesus Christ, into the world. They were looking forward to this promised child with faith. And they were changed because of it. And you and I can be changed in the same way, transformed by grace today through faith in Jesus Christ. If you've walked in this place today and you're looking at your sin, you're feeling the weight of your sin, I I hope you can look and see that this passage is pointing you to your only hope, to your only help. It's pointing you to the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, who came through sinners and for sinners. This is pointing you to the only one who could stand in your place and received the judgment of God, the penalty that you deserve for your sin that we've talked about already, right? That what you, the, the death that you deserved, he died in your place. The life that you long to live, you can find only by faith in him, the one who went through death for you, who is raised to newness of life, who is exalted to the right hand of the Father, who rules and reigns. He is, listen, he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he is the Lamb of God, slain for the sins of the world. Believe in him, and your life can be radically transformed. Your sin does not need to be the end of your story. Believe in the Lamb of God, bow before the Lion of the tribe of Judah, be saved, and then be used by his glory and grace to advance his purposes in this world. As you're preparing to respond with one final song, I want to remind you that this this is the story of grace for every single one of us. Listen, if the Messiah can be born through the likes of Judah and Tamar, his grace is great enough to change you. It's great enough to use you. And it's changed the lives of billions of people around the world and throughout all of history, including the life of a man named John Newton, the once captain of a slave trading ship, a selfish, profane, sexually immoral drunkard who invested heavily in the slave trade. He was radically transformed by the grace of God. His his sin was exposed and he was utterly shattered. And God's grace came and rescued him, transformed him. And the man who was a slave trader became a pastor and a famous hymn writer. He he wrote the lyrics of the, the famous song, Amazing Grace, that we all, I think, know and love. And let me just remind you about those lyrics before we stand and sing them together. He says this, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. I trust that's true for you today, and I trust that that causes your heart to just soar with praise for the grace of God in your life. Let's stand together and let's sing those words together.